Chapter Five of Fenton's Quest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Fenton's Quest by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Five. Halcyon Days. It was still quite early in September when Gilbert Fenton went back to Lidford and took up his quarters once more in the airy chintz-curtained bedchamber set apart for him at his sister's house. He had devoted himself very resolutely to the business during the interval that had gone by since his last visit to that quiet country house. But the time had seemed very long to him, and he fancied himself a kind of martyr to the necessities of commerce. The aspect of his affairs of late had not been quite free from unpleasantness. There were difficulties in the conduct of business in the Melbourne branch of the house. That branch was under the charge of a cousin of Gilbert's, about whose business capacities the late Mr. Fenton had entertained the most exalted opinion. The Melbourne Trading Company had not of late done much credit to this gentleman's commercial genius. He had put his trust in firms that had crumbled to pieces before the bills drawn upon them became due, involving his cousin in considerable losses. Gilbert was rich enough to stand these losses, however, and reconciled himself to them as best he might, taking care to send his Australian partner imperative instructions for a more prudent system of trading in the future. The uneasiness and vexation produced by this business was still upon him when he went down to Lidford, but he reflected upon Marion Knowles' presence to dissipate all his care. He did find himself perfectly happy in her society. He was troubled by no doubts as to her affection for him no uncertainty as to the brightness of the days that were to come. Her manner seemed to him all that a man could wish for in the future partner of his life. An innocent trustfulness in his superior judgment, a childlike submission to his will which Marian displayed upon all occasions, were alike flattering and delightful. Nor did she ever appear to grow tired of that talk of their future which was so pleasant to her lover there was no shadow of a doubt upon her face when he spoke of the serene happiness which they two were to find in an existence spent together he was the first who had ever spoken to her of these things and she listened to him with utter simplicity and freshness of mind time had reconciled isabella lister to her brother's choice and she now deigned to smile upon the lovers very much to gilbert's satisfaction he had been too proud to supplicate her good graces but he was pleased that his only sister should show herself gracious and affectionate to the girl he loved so fondly. During the second visit of his, therefore, Marian came very often to Lidford House, sometimes accompanied by her uncle, sometimes alone, and there was perfect harmony between the elder and younger lady. The partridges upon Martin Lister's estate did not suffer much damage from his brother-in-law's gun that autumn. Gilbert found it a great deal pleasanter to spend his mornings dawdling in the little cottage drawing-room under the walnut-trees with Marian, than to waste his noontide hours in the endeavour to fill a credible game-bag. There is not very much to tell of the hours which those two spent together so happily. It was an innocent, frivolous, useless employment of time, and left little trace behind it, except in the heart of one of those two. Gilbert wondered at himself when, in some sober interval of reflection, he happened to consider those idle mornings, those tranquil, uneventful afternoons and evenings, remembering what a devoted man of business he had once been, and how, a few months ago, he would have denounced such a life in another. "'Well,' he said to himself, with a happy laugh, "'a man can take this fever but once in his life, and it is only wise in him to surrender himself utterly to the divine delirium.' 
i shall have no excuse for neglecting business by and by when my little wife and i are settled down together for the rest of our days let me be her lover while i may can i ever be less than her lover i wonder will marriage or custom or the assurance that we belong to each other for the rest of our days take the poetry out of our lives i think not i think marion must always be to me what she has seemed to me from the very first something better and brighter than the common things of this life custom which made marion knoll dearer to gilbert fenton every day had by this time familiarized herself with his position as her future husband she was no longer surprised or distressed when he pleaded for a short engagement and a speedy realization of that utopian home which they were to inhabit together the knowledge of her uncle's delight in this engagement of hers might have reconciled her to it even if she had not loved gilbert fenton and she told herself that she did love him or more often than putting the matter in the form of a question asked herself whether she could be so basely grateful as not to love one who regarded her with such disinterested affection it was settled finally after a good deal of pleasant discussion that the wedding should take place early in the coming spring at latest in april even this seemed a long delay to gilbert but he submitted to it as an inevitable concession to the superior instinct of his betrothed which harmonized so well with mrs lister's idea of wisdom and propriety there was the house to be secured too so that he might have a fitting home to which to take his darling when their honeymoon was over and as he had no female relation in london who could take the care of furnishing the earthly paradise off his hands he felt that the whole business must devolve upon himself and could not be done without time captain sedgwick promised to bring marion to town for a fortnight in october in order that she might assist her lover in that delightful duty of house-hunting she looked forward to this visit with quite a childlike pleasure her life at lidford had been completely happy but it was a monotonous kind of happiness and the notion of going about london even at the dullest time of year was very delightful to her the weather happened to be especially fine that september it was the brightest month of the year and the lovers took long rambles together in the woodland roads and lanes about lidford sometimes alone more often with the captain who was a very fair pedestrian in spite of having had a bullet or two through his legs in the days gone by when the weather was too warm for walking gilbert borrowed martin lister's dog-cart and drove them on long journeys of exploration into remote villages or to the cherry little market town ten miles away they all three set out for a walk one afternoon when gilbert had been about a fortnight at lidford with no particular destination only bent on enjoying the lovely weather and the rustic beauty of woodland and meadow the captain chose their route as he always did on these occasions and under his guidance they followed the river bank for some distance and then turned aside into a wood in which gilbert fenton had never been before he said so with an expression of surprise at the beauty of the place where the fern grew deep under giant oaks and beeches where the mossy ground dipped suddenly down into a deep still pool which reflected the sunlit sky through a break in the dark foliage that sheltered it what have you never been here exclaimed the captain then you have never seen heatherly i suppose never by the way is that not sir david foster's place asked gilbert remembering john saltram's promise he had seen very little more of his friend after that visit to rivercombe and had half forgotten mr saltram's talk of coming down to this neighbourhood on purpose to be presented to marian yes it is something of a show-place too and we think a good deal of it in these parts 
there are some fine sir jonas among the family portraits painted in the days when the fosters were better off and of more importance in the country than they are now and there are a few other good pictures dutch interiors and some seascapes by bachusen decidedly you ought to see heatherly shall we push on there this afternoon is it far from here not much more than a mile this wood joins the park and there is a public right-of-way across the park to lidford road so the gate is always open we can't waste our walk and i know sir david quite well enough to ask him to let you see the pictures if he should happen to be at home i should like it of all things said gilbert eagerly my friend john saltram knows this sir david forster and he talked of being down here at this time i forgot all about it until you spoke of heatherly just now i have a knack for forgetting things nowadays i wonder that you should forget anything connected with mr saltram gilbert said marian that mr saltram of whom you think so much i cannot tell you how anxious i am to see what kind of person he is not handsome you have confessed as much as that yes marian i admit the painful fact there are people who call john saltram ugly but his face is not a common one it is a very picturesque kind of ugliness a face that velasquez would have loved to paint i think it is a rugged strongly marked countenance with a villainously dark complexion but the eyes are very fine the mouth perfection and there is a look of power in the face that to my mind is better than beauty and i think you own that mr saltram is hardly the most agreeable person in the world well no he's not what one would call an, an eminently agreeable person and yet he exercises a good deal of influence over the men he knows without admitting many of them to his friendship he is very clever not a brilliant talker by any means except on rare occasions when he chooses to give full swing to his power he does not lay himself out for social success but he is a man who seems to know more of every subject than the men about him i doubt if he will ever succeed at the bar he has so little perseverance or steadiness and indulges in such an erratic delusory mode of life but he has made his mark in literature already and i think he might become a great man if he choose whether he ever will choose is a doubtful question i'm afraid he must be a rather dissipated dangerous kind of person said marian well yes he is subject to occasional outbreaks of dissipation but they don't last long and they seem not to leave the faintest impression upon his herculean constitution but of course that sort of thing does more or less injury to a man's mind however comparatively harmless the form of his dissipation may be there are very few men whom john saltram cannot drink under the table and rise with a steady brain himself when the wassail is ended yet i believe in a general way few men drink less than he does at cards he's equally strong a past master in all games of skill and the play is apt to be rather high at one or two of the clubs he belongs to he has a wonderful power of self-restraint when he cares to exert it we'll play six or seven hours every night for three weeks at a stretch and then not touch a card for six months poor old john said gilbert fenton with a half-regretful sigh under happy circumstances he might be such a good man but i fear he is a dangerous friend for you gilbert exclaimed marian horrified by this glimpse of bachelor life no darling i have never shared his wilder pleasures there are a few chosen spirits with whom he consorts at such times i believe this sir david forster is one of them sir david has the reputation of leading a rather wild life in london said the captain and of bringing a dissipated set down here every autumn 
Things have not gone well with him. His wife, who was a very beautiful girl, and whom he passionately loved, was killed by a fall from her horse a few months after the birth of their first child. The child died too, and the double loss ruined Sir David. He used to spend the greater part of his life at Heatherly, and was a general favorite among the county people. But since that time he has avoided the place, except during the shooting season. He has a hunting box in the shires, and is a regular daredevil over a big country, they tell me. They had reached the little gate opening from the wood into the park by this time. There was not much difference in the aspect of the sylvan scene upon the other side of the fence. Sir David's domain had been a good deal neglected of late years, and the brushwood and brambles grew thick under the noble trees. The timber had not yet suffered by its owner's improvidence. The end of all things must have come for Sir David before he would have consented to the spoliation of a place he so fondly loved little as he cared to inhabit it since the day that shattered all that was brightest and best in his life for some time captain sedgwick and his companions went along the footpath under the shelter of the trees and then emerged upon a wide stretch of smooth turf across which they commanded a perfect view of the principal front of the old house it was a quadrangular building of the elizabethan period very plainly built with no special beauty to recommend it to the lover of the picturesque Whatever charm or form it may have possessed in the past had been ruthlessly extirpated by the modernization of the windows, which were now all of one size and form, a long gaunt range of unsheltered casements, staring blankly out upon the spectator. There were no flower-beds or graceful flights of steps before the house, only a bare grass-plot with a stiff line of tall elms on each side and a wide dry moat dividing it from the turf in the park. Two lodges ponderous square brick buildings with very small windows, each the exact counterpart of the other, and a marvel of substantial ugliness kept guard over a pair of tall iron gates, about six hundred yards apart, approached by stone bridges that spanned the moat. Captain Sedgwick rang a bell hanging by the side of one of these gates, whereat there arose a shrill peal that set the rooks screaming in the tall elms overhead. An elderly female appeared in answer to this summons, and opened the gate in a slow, mechanical way, without the faintest show of interest in the people about to enter, and looking as if she would have admitted a gang of obvious burglars with equal indifference. "'Rather a hideous style of place,' said Gilbert, as they walked towards the house. "'But I think show-places, as a general rule, excel in ugliness.' i dare say the owners of them find a dismal kind of satisfaction in considering the depressing influence of their dreary piles and bricks and mortar must exercise on the minds of strangers maybe a sort of compensation for being obliged to live in such a gaol of a place there was a clumsy low stone portico over the door wide enough to admit a carriage and lounging under a branch under its stony shelter they found a sleepy-looking manservant who informed Captain Sedgwick that Sir David was at Heatherly, but that he was out shooting with his friends at this present moment. In his absence the man would be very happy to show the house to Captain Sedgwick and his party. Gilbert Fenton asked about John Saltram. Yes, Mr. Saltram had arrived at Heatherly on Tuesday evening, two nights ago. They went over the staterooms and looked at the pictures, which were really as good as the captain had represented them. The inspection occupied a little more than an hour, and they were ready to take their departure, when the sound of masculine voices resounded loudly in the hall, and their conductor announced that Sir David and his friends had come in. 
there were only two gentlemen in the hall when they went into that spacious marble-paved chamber where there were great logs burning in the wide open hearth in spite of the warmth of the september day one of these two was sir david forster a big man with light brown beard and a florid complexion the other was john saltram who sat in a lounging attitude on one of the deep window-seats examining his breech-loader his back was turned towards the window, and the glare of the blazing log shone full upon his dark face, with a strange Rembrandt-like effect. One glance told Marion Knoll who this man was. That powerful face, with its unfathomable eyes and thoughtful mouth, was not the countenance she had conjured up from the depths of her imagination when Gilbert Fenton had described his friend. Yet she felt that this stranger lounging in the window was John Saltram, and no other. He rose and set down his gun very quietly, and stood by the window waiting while Captain Sedgwick introduced Gilbert to Sir David. Then he came forward, shook hands with his friend, and was thereupon presented to Marian and her uncle by Gilbert, who made these introductions with a kind of happy eagerness. Sir David was full of friendliness and hospitality, and insisted on keeping them to show Gilbert and Miss Knowles some pictures in the billiard-room, and in his own private snuggery, apartments which were not shown to ordinary visitors. They strolled through these rooms in a leisurely way, Sir David making considerable pains to show Gilbert Fenton the gems of his collection, John Saltram acting as Cithroni to Marion. He was curious to discover what this girl was like whether she had indeed only her beauty to recommend her, or whether she was sober reality the perfect being Gilbert Fenton believed her to be. She was very beautiful. The first brief look convinced Mr. Saltram that upon this point at least her lover had indulged in no lover-like exaggeration. There was a singular charm in the face, a higher, more penetrating loveliness than mere perfection of feature, a kind of beauty that would have been at once the delight and desperation of a painter, so fitting a subject for his brush, so utterly beyond the power of perfect reproduction, unless by one of those happy, almost accidental successes which make the triumph of genius. John Saltram watched Marion Knowles' face thoughtfully as he talked to her, for the most part, about the pictures which they were looking at together. Before their inspection of these art treasures was ended, he was fain to confess to himself that she was intelligent as well as beautiful. It was not that she had said anything particularly brilliant, or had shown herself learned in the qualities of the old Dutch masters, but she possessed that charming, childlike capacity for receiving information from a superior mind, and that perfect and rapid power of appreciating a clever man's conversation, which were apt to seem so delightful to the sterner sex when exhibited by a pretty woman. At first she had been just a little shy and constrained in her talk with John Saltram, her lover's account of this man had not inspired her with any exalted opinion of his character. She was rather inclined to look upon him as a person to be dreaded, a friend whose influence was dangerous at best, and who might prove the evil genius of Gilbert Fenton's life. But whatever her opinion on this point might remain, her reserve soon melted before John Saltram's clever talk and kindly conciliating manner. He laid himself out to please on this occasion and it was very rarely that he did that without succeeding. "'I want you to think of me as a kind of brother, Miss Nowell,' he said in the course of their talk. "'Gilbert and I have been something like brothers for the last twelve years of our lives, and it would be a hard thing, for one of us at least, if our friendship should ever be lessened. You shall find me discretion itself by and by, and you shall see that I can respect Gilbert's altered position. But I shouldn't like to lose him.' 
and I don't think you look capable of setting your face against your husband's old friend. Marian blushed a little at this, remembering that only an hour or two ago she had been thinking that this friendship was a perilous one for Gilbert, and that it would be well if John Saltram's influence over him could be lessened somehow in the future. I don't believe I should ever have the power to diminish Gilbert's regard for you, Mr. Saltram, even if I were inclined to do so, she said. Oh, yes, you would. Your power over him will be illimitable, depend upon it. But now I have seen you, I think you will only use it wisely. Marian shook her head, laughing gaily. I am much more fitted to be ruled than to rule, Mr. Saltram, she said. I am utterly inexperienced in the world, you know, and Mr. Fenton is my superior in every way. You're superior in years, I know, but in what else? In everything else, in intellect and judgment, as well as in knowledge of the world. You could never imagine what a quiet, changeless life I've led. Your intellect is so much clearer for that, I think, and it has not been disturbed by all the narrow, petty influence of a life spent in what is called society. Before they left the house, Gilbert and the captain were obliged to promise to dine at Heatherly next day very much to the secret distaste of the former, who must thus lose an evening with Marian, but who was ashamed to reveal his hopeless condition by a persistent refusal. Captain Sedgwick begged John Saltram to choose an early day for dining at the cottage, and Gilbert gave him a general invitation to Lidford House. These matters being settled, they departed, accompanied by Mr. Saltram, who proposed to walk as far as the wood with them, and who extended his walk still farther, only leaving them at the gate of the captain's modest domain. The conversation was general throughout the way back, and they all found plenty to talk about, as they loitered slowly among the waving shadows of the trees, flickering darkly on the winding path by which they went. Gilbert lingered outside the gate after Marian and her uncle had gone into the cottage. He was so eager to hear his friend praise the girl he loved. "'Well, John,' he asked. "'Well, dear old boy, she is all that is beautiful and charming, and I can only congratulate you upon your choice. Miss Knowles's perfection is a subject about which there cannot be two opinions.' "'And you think she loves me, Jack?' "'Do I think she loves you? Why, surely, Gil, that is not a question upon which you want another man's judgment.' No, of course not, but one is never tired of receiving the assurance of that fact, and you should see by her way of speaking about me. She spoke of you in the prettiest manner possible. She seems to consider you quite a superior being. Dear girl, she is so good and simple-hearted. Do you know, Jack, I feel as if I could never sufficiently be grateful to Providence for my happiness in having won such an angel. Well, you certainly have to consider yourself a very lucky fellow but I doubt if any man ever deserved good fortune better than you do, Gilbert. And now good-bye. It's getting unconsciously late, and I shall scarcely get back in time to change my clothes for dinner. We spend all our evenings in pious devotion to billiards with a rubber or two, and a little lansquette towards the small hours. Don't forget your engagement to-morrow. Good-bye. They had a very pleasant evening at Heatherley's. Sir David Guest's at this time consisted of a Major Fuljambi, an elderly gentleman who had seen a good deal of service in India, a Mr. Harker, who had been in the church, and left it in disgust, as alike unsuited to his taste and capacity, Mr. Windus Carr, a prosperous West End solicitor, who had inherited a first-rate practice from his father, and who devoted his talents to the enjoyment of life, leaving his clients to the care of his partner, a steady-going, stout gentleman, with a bald head and inexhaustible capacity for business, 
and last by no means least john saltram who possessed more influence over david forster than anyone else in the world end of chapter five recording by kirk ziggler ogden utah voiceovers by kirk dot com